This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. If you're looking for ways to replace fossil fuels with clean, renewable energy sources that don't produce any carbon pollution, wind power looks pretty good. They're taking advantage of free energy coming from the wind. It's a natural resource. And that's why there's widespread consensus among climate scientists and policymakers that wind has an important role to play in the energy economy of the future. But when you look at what goes into building a wind turbine, you find the devils in the details. There's a lot of steel, there's a lot of metal, there's a lot of component, there's a lot of devices, much of which has a high carbon intensity to produce. So we have to start to look at at how these things affect each other and make sure that we're getting the right, in terms of carbon, the right carbon trade-offs. The pitfalls of renewable energy and deep decarbonization. We'll talk about that and more with Dr. Greg Reed from the Center for Energy at the University of Pittsburgh. That's coming up. But first, a look at environmental news headlines from around the state this week. A new report from a Massachusetts-based firm puts the value of Pennsylvania's nuclear power industry in the billions. The analysis compiled by the Brattle Group on behalf of several business and development organizations found the state's five nuclear plants contribute around $2 billion a year to Pennsylvania's economy and about $69 million in annual tax revenues. The report also highlights the industry's role in the carbon economy. It says each year, nuclear power generation offsets more than 37 million metric tons of CO2 that would otherwise be emitted by burning fossil fuels. That works out to about $1.6 billion worth of carbon each year. Researchers estimated nuclear power lowers the cost of electricity for ratepayers to the tune of $788 million a year. The research was commissioned by the Pennsylvania Building and Construction Trades Council, the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry, the Allegheny Conference on Community Development, and the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce. The Department of Environmental Protection has begun a two-year process to update the state water plan, DEP's reassessing water use statewide, to get a more accurate picture of where water supply is keeping up with or falling short of demand. The 2008 law establishing the state water plan requires it to be reviewed every five years. It includes provisions to update the statewide and regional Atlas of Trends, the water plan principles document, and registration and reporting rules for large water users. Gasoline prices are up across Pennsylvania amid a global production slowdown by oil exporting nations. Meeting last month in Vienna, OPEC members agreed to cut production by nearly 2 million barrels a day. Russia and a handful of other non-OPEC countries followed suit last weekend, prompting Saudi Arabia to announce further reductions in 2017. By Monday, the average price of gas in the U.S. had risen 3 cents to $2.21 a gallon. That's according to GasBuddy.com. In Pennsylvania, the statewide average rose to $2.41 this week, with prices as high as $2.44 in Pittsburgh and $2.45 in Scranton. Petroleum prices had fallen to historic lows over the last two years as oil producers sought to undercut the market for North American shale gas. Township supervisors in Bucks County this week dealt a blow to plans for a key section of the Newtown Rail Trail, part of Greater Philadelphia's Circuit Trails Network. Philly.com reports Northampton Township was the final holdout among five communities that would have been connected along the trail's eight-mile route. On Wednesday, Northampton's Board of Supervisors voted not to authorize an engineering study for the project, which would still have required all five municipalities to give final approval before it could proceed. The proposal faced loud opposition from homeowners and others concerned about crime, insurance liability, and other possible impacts on private property. 
When completed, the new town trail would have linked Bucks with Montgomery County by way of the Pennypack Trail. Elsewhere in Bucks County this week, a local officials cut the ribbon on a new segment of the Delaware and Lehigh Trail in Bristol Township. The new section opened Friday. It's only about 1,200 feet long, but it's a key component of the DNL trail system, carrying users across a busy intersection to close the final gap in a seven-mile trail link between Bristol and Falls Townships. And snowmobilers in northwestern Pennsylvania are getting an early Christmas present. Officials at Allegheny National Forest say its 365 miles of trails already have enough snow to open as of Friday, December 16th. That's a little bit earlier than usual thanks to recent snowstorms. Riders need to have their vehicles registered with DCNR to use the National Forest. Some 3,000 miles of trails and roads in Pennsylvania, state parks and forests open to snowmobiles on December 11th. The Center for Energy is the University of Pittsburgh's hub for education, research, and projects to improve the development of energy technology and sustainability. They work on everything from energy efficiency and diversification to carbon management and advanced materials for demanding energy technologies. Dr. Greg Reed is the center's director. We recently sat down with him to learn more about how pit scientists are pursuing deep decarbonization. That's the effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at least 80 percent by mid-century. I think the value to deep decarbonization electricity center, it does a couple of things. One, when when you set policy, it really has a dramatic impact. Uh, When you put incentives out there to implement emerging technologies, use solar as an example, and you saw the growth of solar in states like New Jersey where the incentives were so high where without that you might not have seen it at all, you see the impact policy has and you see the impact of both good and bad policy. So we have to be very smart about how we establish this policy. But when we set really aggressive targets, I think it just moves us in a direction of necessity is the mother of invention. And I think when you put strong goals out there where you necessarily have to develop the technologies and the policy that go along with it, You work a little bit harder, I think, to get there. I think there's more incentive for everyone to reach that. There are so many opportunities. The conversation around deep decarbonization often focuses on the sources of power generation, and it sometimes gets bogged down in arguments over the merits of one source versus another. Dr. Reed says that approach misses the point. Sometimes, he says, you need to dig a little deeper to understand the true carbon implications of a given energy type. Even if you just stay, let's say, with decarbonization in terms of resources itself. And as we look to grow clean energy resources, there are many options there. You know, we don't have much of a nuclear policy in this country, but we know that that's a clean resource. Is our general public and our government and everyone else uh, on the same page in terms of nuclear safety, in terms of, you know, what our strategy is for nuclear? I don't think we have a strong one right now, and I think we have to figure that out because that can be, in the future, a very strong component of what a decarbonization model looks like for uh, you know, reduced carbon emissions from, from power generation. A lot of people probably don't think of it this way, but if you look at wind turbines, right, they're, they're taking advantage of free energy coming from the wind. It's a natural resource. But if you look at what's gone in to build a typical turbine and all of the technology in it, there's a lot of steel, there's a lot of metal, there's a lot of component, there's a lot of devices, much of which has a high carbon intensity to produce. So we have to start to look at at how these things affect each other and make sure that we're getting the right, in terms of carbon, the right carbon trade-offs, you know, 
as as we build these turbines, as we build you know more larger scale uh, solar facilities, uh, again hydro facilities, we have to make sure that from a technology point of view in the electricity market, the trade-offs make sense in terms of trying to reach these decarbonization goals. One of the main topics on the agenda for PEC's upcoming conference is energy efficiency. To many people, that means money-saving steps taken by consumers, things like weatherizing a home or switching out light bulbs. But achieving true decarbonization will require greater efficiency across the entire electricity system. And that's what Dr. Reed and his colleagues are working on. A lot of our work is on the interfaces. We work on the, the power electronics devices that convert AC to DC. And more of our, our end-use products use direct current, not three-phase alternating current. More of our resources like solar uh, produce a natural DC output. Batteries for vehicles and energy storage is all DC. But we've kind of grown up in this AC world. So we're seeing this other change of a proliferation of DC devices, end-use products, resources. And so a lot of our work is in these interfaces between those two and what are called power electronics converters. When you look at electricity production through transmission distribution to end-use, it is not necessarily a very efficient process. Uh, We don't have very high efficiency at all in terms of taking potential energy and turning it into useful energy. We know that. That's the laws of physics, and there's there's a thermal aspect to that, and, and even solar panels are only at the best, maybe commercially 17% efficient, things like that. So we lose a lot of efficiency just taking the potential energy that exists and turning it into useful energy. But then we also have all of this loss through the delivery system, you know, just by the nature of what it is and the materials it's made up of and the infrastructure. And that delivery infrastructure, the transmission and distribution infrastructure, accounts for anywhere from 7 to 10% of the total loss of an electricity network. And then, of course, you get to the end-use device, whether it's a light bulb or, uh, you know, a machine, that end-use device is going to consume a lot of inefficiency as well in terms of the heat dissipation and everything like that. But if I come back to that transmission and distribution infrastructure, um, everything that we can do to take a percentage or a, or a tenth of a percent of a point out of that loss calculation, we're adding value. That's less energy that has to be produced. That is a reduction in carbon. So when we work on things and we talk about these conversion technologies, the more efficient we can make them, the more efficient we can make operation of the grid, the more efficient we can make this interface of new resources, storage, end-use products much more efficient than it is today by reducing those losses. We are getting a carbon reduction value. And that can be a really, really strong one when you aggregate it, you know, across a region, across a state, across a nation. Uh, So incrementally, it sounds like, does that really make a difference? And it might not sound like it does, but when you start to aggregate it, it becomes very, very large. If you just look at energy input to energy output in the electricity sector alone, the amount of useful energy versus wasteful energy, there's a very strong correlation there. In fact, in the Pittsburgh region, about 41% of all energy produced ends up being wasted. That's according to a recent assessment by the Power of 32 initiative, which includes 32 counties in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, northern West Virginia, and northern Maryland. Nationwide, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory has calculated that in 2015, around 61% of energy produced in the U.S. went to waste. That's a big number, and every little thing we can do 
to reduce that is important. And, and that's happening in other areas. We, you know, we're seeing a lot of the Energy Star devices, and, and we're seeing a reduction in end-use product you know, need in terms of energy intensity. So you have energy efficiency appliances, you have energy efficiency devices, and, and new conservation methods. Obviously, those odd, all add into it as well. But again, from our perspective, wherever we can develop a technology that not only has a development and a research and development goal in mind to create a new technology, maybe a new market, you know, maybe a, a new product. If we can add to that a value that is based on a deep carbonization goal, it comes back to what we said before about uh, the added incentive to doing that. And I think more of an inspiration to innovate, more of a desire to want to make that type of contribution. Dr. Greg Reed of the Center for Energy at the University of Pittsburgh. And that's our show for this week. You can learn more about deep decarbonization and about PEC's March 2017 conference on achieving deep carbon reductions at PEC-climate.org. That's PEC-climate.org. You can sign up for the conference right there at the site. Pennsylvania Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. The views expressed are not necessarily those of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. You can find more podcast episodes and learn more about PEC's work across the Commonwealth at our website. It's at PECPA.org. I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>